coming. Really enjoyed being here with the artists. Good thing about being here with artists, being around artists, is they actually have something to talk about because they have so many materials. They go, yeah, I was dumpster diving. I was hanging around a garage. You talk to poets, they go, yeah, I thought of a line yesterday. <laughs> the other one goes, yeah, that happened to me last week. I erased mine. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you came. I was shamelessly getting people to try and come to the reading. I think I re reached one of my low moments when I was like telling a famous Chinese poet that it's required to come to readings here when you do residencies. That's a culturally low moment, I think. Um, cotton candy. We walked on the bridge over the Chicago River for what turned out to be the last time. And I ate cotton candy, that sugary air, that sweet blue light spun out of nothingness. It was just a moment, really, nothing more. But I remember marveling at the sturdy cables of the bridge that held us up and threading my fingers the long and slender fingers of my grandfather, an old man from the old world who long ago disappeared into the nether regions. And I remember that eight-year-old boy who had tasted the sweetness of air, which still clings to my mouth and disappears when I breathe. This is called Branch Library. I wish I could find that skinny, long-beaked boy who perched in the branches of the old Branch Library. He spent the Sabbath flying between the wobbly stacks and the flimsy wooden tables on the second floor, pecking at nuts, nesting in broken spines, scratching notes under his own corner patch of sky. I'd give anything to find that birdie boy again, bursting out into the dusky blue afternoon with a satchel of scrawls and scribbles, radiating heat, singing with joy. I'm a great admirer of Agnes Martin's work. I don't know if you know it, but I think she's a really great painter. And it's very mysterious how those, there's so little on the canvas. There's just those, the paintings I'm thinking about are those squibs where just like a tiny little line. Anyway, I, it's mysterious how they work. Anyway, I wrote a poem for, for her and I thought I'd read it to you um, in a shameless attempt to relate to you. Um, it's, it's called the, the Horizontal Line, homage to Agnes Martin. It was like a white sail in the early morning. It was like a tremulous wind calming itself after night on the thunderous sea. The exhausted lightning lay down on its side and slept on a bed of cumulus sheets. She came out of the mountains and surrendered to the expansiveness of a plain. She underlined a text in Isaiah, make level in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The mountain grew tired of striving upward and longed to flatten its ragged peaks. The nostalgia of a cathedral for the open plain the nostalgia of a soprano for plain song. I know a woman who slept on a cot 
and sailed over the abyss on a wooden plank. She looked as far as the eye can see, but the eye is a circle, poor pupil, and the universe curved. It was like a pause on the bridge of sighs, an instant before the storm or the moment afterward. My friend listened to Gregorian chants on the car radio as he raced down a two-lane highway in southern France. I remember riding a bicycle very fast on a country road where the yellow line quivered ever so slightly in the sun. The faint tremor in my father's hand when he signed his name after the stroke, the beauty of an imperfection, an almost empty canvas turned on its side, a zip that forever changed its mind. From its first pointed stroke to its last brush with meaning, the glow of the line was spiritual. How the childlike pencil went for a walk and came home skipping. It was like lying down at dusk to rest on the cool pavement under the car after a blistering day in the desert. The beaded evanescence of the summer heat. The horizon was a glimmering blue band, a luminous streamer in the distance. I recited, brightness falls from the air, and the line suddenly whisked me away. No chapel is more breathtaking than the one that has been retrieved on the horizon of memory. She remembered the stillness of a pool before the swimmers entered the water and the colorful ropes dividing the lanes. Each swimmer was a scar in the blue mist. Invisible bird, whistle me up from the dark on a bright branch. It's not the low murmur of your voice, almost breaking over the phone, but the thin wire of grief, the hum of joy that connects us. Sacred dream of geometry, ruler and protractor, temper my anguish, untrouble my mind. Heartbeat, steady my hand. Each year she crossed the line through the front page of a fresh diary and vowed to live above the line. She would not line up with others. She would align herself with the simple truth. She erased every line in her notebook but one. Farewell to the aspirations of the vertical, the ecstasies of the diagonal, the suffering cross. Someone left a prayer book open in the rain and the printed lines blurred. Ink smudged our fingers when we prayed. Let every line be its own revelation. The line in the painting was surrounded by light. The light in the painting held its breath on the threshold of a discovery. If only she could picture the boundlessness of God drawing an invisible thread through the starry spaces. If only she could paint the horizon without limits. A horizontal line is a pilgrimage. A segment of devotion rested from time. An infinitely gentle mark on a blank page. The stripe remains after everything else is gone. It is a wisp of praise with a human hand. It is singing on a bare canvas. This is named after this is named after an Edward Hopper painting called Early Sunday Morning. 
I used to mock my father and his chums for getting up early on Sunday morning and drinking coffee at a local spot, but now I'm one of those chumps. No one cares about my old humiliations, but they go on dragging through my sleep like a string of empty tin cans rattling behind an abandoned car. It's like this. Just when you think you've forgotten that red-haired girl who left you stranded in a parking lot 40 years ago, you wake up early enough to see her disappearing around the corner of your dream on someone else's motorcycle, roaring onto the highway at sunrise. And so now I'm sitting in a dimly lit cafe full of early morning risers where the windows are covered with soot and the coffee is warm and bitter. I wish I could paint you. I wish I could paint you, your lanky body, lithe, cultish, direct. I need a brush for your hard angles and ferocious blues and reds. I need to stretch a fresh canvas to catch you stretched across the bed. I wish I could paint you from the waist up, your gangling arms and flat chest, your long neck, it would take Modigliani to capture it that has caused you so much pain holding up your proud head. I wish I could paint you from the waist down, your cheeky ass, your cunt like the steely eye of a warrior queen, your tall thoroughbred legs, headlong, furious, that have ridden me to victory. I watch you sleeping next to me in a patch of light or stepping out of the shower in the early morning your smile as wide as the sea, and your eyes that are deeper blue. I wish I could paint you. Whenever I read that poem, there's some other guy who calls on a cell phone. <laughs> just, at that, just at that moment. He's like, I don't like you writing poems to her, and you're going to stop it, and I'm going to interrupt your readings. Just saying. Self-portrait. I live between my heart and my head, like a married couple who can't get along. I live between my left arm, which is swift and sinister, and my right, which is righteous. I live between a laugh and a skull, and voted against myself, a two-party system. My left leg dawdled or danced along, my right cleaved to the straight and narrow. My left shoulder was like a stripper on vacation. My right stood upright as a Roman soldier. Let's just say that my left side was the organ donor and leave my private parts alone. But as for my eyes, which are two shades of brown, well, Dionysus, meet Apollo. Look at Eve raising her left eyebrow while Adam puts his right foot down. No one expected it to survive but divorce seemed out of the question. I suppose my left hand and my right hand will be clasped over my chest in the coffin and I'll be reconciled at last. I'll be whole again. This is called A Partial History of My Stupidity. 
I mean, you're young, you can do the whole thing, but you get to be a certain age, you can't do the whole thing anymore. It's too much. You need to write an epic. So this is just like volume three, chapter five, something like that. Partial history of my stupidity. <laughs> Traffic was heavy coming off the bridge, and I took the road to the right, the wrong one, and got stuck in the car for hours. Most nights I rushed out into the evening without paying attention to the trees, whose names I didn't know, or the birds, which flew heedlessly on. I couldn't relinquish my desires or accept them, and so I strolled along like a tiger that wanted to spring, but was still afraid of the wildness within. The iron bar seemed invisible to others, but I carried a cage around inside me. I cared too much what other people thought and made remarks I shouldn't have made. I was silent when I should have spoken. Forgive me, philosophers. I read the Stoics, but never understood them. I felt that I was living the wrong life, spiritually speaking, while halfway around the world, thousands of people were being slaughtered, some of them by my countrymen. So I walked on, distracted, lost in thought, and forgot to attend to those who suffered far away, nearby. Forgive me, Faith, for never having any. I did not believe in God, who eluded me. This is for a wonderful writer named William Maxwell, a fiction writer who was a dear friend of mine. It's called the Chardin Exhibition. It's pretty evident. It's about going to see an exhibition of Chardin's paintings while um, Bill was dying, but he, I was seeing it because he was very eager for me to see this show, the Chardin Exhibition. While I was studying the copper cistern and the silver goblet, a soup tureen with a cat stalking a partridge in here. You were gulping down the morning light and moving from the bedstand to the bureau, from the shuttered window to the open door. While I was taking my time over a pristine jar of apricots and a basket of wild strawberries, a pyramid leaning toward a faceted glass, you were sitting at a low breakfast table eating a soft-boiled egg just one, from a tiny, hesitant, glittering spoon. While I was absorbed in a duck hanging by one leg and a hare with a powder flask and a game bag, which you wanted me to see, you were lying on the living room couch for a nap, one of your last, next to a white porcelain vase with two carnations. I wish I could have stood there with you in front of Chardin's last self-portrait, exclaiming over his turban with a bow and the red splash of his pastel crayon, a new medium, which he used, dearest, to defy death on a sheet of blue paper. This is a poem for my father. It's called Special Orders. My father was a box salesman. He sold corrugated cartons. And um, he liked special orders rather than standard orders. 
because um, in special orders you made up the boxes yourself and you got paid for. So, special orders. Give me back my father, walking the halls of Wertheimer Box and Paper Company with sawdust clinging to his shoes. Give me back his tape measure and his keys, his drafting pencil and his order forms. Give me his daydreams on line paper. I don't understand this uncontainable grief. Whatever you had that never fit, whatever else you needed, believe me, my father, who wanted your business, would squat down at your side and sketch you a container for it. called Troubadour Song. I woke this winter morning to the smell of the sea and hummed a song for nothing, how nothing came to me. I dreamed I mounted a horse along an empty beach where we galloped far away till I was out of reach. We trotted past the lighthouse abandoned on the dunes and paused by a small stable that was now in ruins. I woke this winter morning to the smell of the sea and made a song for nothing, how nothing came to me. We rode to the starkest edge of nowhere by the sea. The horse was all that remained of what I'd longed to be. We had somewhere deep to rest and nothing left to see. And so the two of us walked into the cemetery. I woke this winter morning to the smell of the sea, and sang a song for nothing, how nothing came to me. Um, I have a book-length poem, which I published this year, called Gabriel a Poem. It's, an, it's a poem for my 22-year-old son who died, and I'm just going to read you a couple of sections from it. The population of his feelings could not be governed by the authorities. He had reasons why reason disobeyed him and voted him out of office. Anxiety, his constant companion, made it difficult to rest. Unruly party of one, forget about truces or compromises. The barricades will be stormed. Every day was an emergency. Every day called for another emergency meeting of the cabinet. In his country, there were scenes of spectacular carnage. Hurricanes welcomed him. He adored typhoons and tornadoes, furies unleashed, houses lifted up and carried to the sea, uncontained, uncontainable. Unbolt the, unbolt the doors, fling open the gates. Here he comes chaotic wind of the gods. He was trouble, but he was our trouble. From the storybook of bluster and bad judgment, from the annals of loneliness, from the history of kids he met on the street in special programs, it was dangerous to stay in Amherst. 
Lord of misadventure, I'm scared of rounding him up and turning him into a story. God of scribbles and erasures, I hope he shines through like a Giacometti portrait. I keep scraping the canvas and painting him over it again, but he keeps slipping away. He was like a spider preyed on by other spiders and older insects. Sweet venom, his arrivals were swift and his departure sudden. I couldn't understand how he lifted the shower door right off its hinges. When Gabriel cooked, the flames rose too high and the fire alarm sounded. When the fire alarm sounded, he tore it off the wall and left the wires dangling. I stood at the damaged site across the street from my house and watched the steel ball crashing into the homeless shelter abandoned on Dean Street, all the people scattered. It takes tremendous force to weaken a building and turn bricks into rubble. It doesn't take long. The crane swung around and pitched the heavy ball into the guts of the structure, holding its side like a wounded veteran. The hard hats gathered to watch the pendulum swing into the concrete body of a building slated for demolition so there could be progress. I was against the project and riveted to the wreckage. Time and again, the fighter wavered and finally collapsed. I did not stay to see the building broken down into debris and then carted away. Some nights I could not tell if he was the wrecking ball or the building it crashed into. I did not know the work of mourning is like carrying a bag of cement up a mountain at night. The mountaintop is not in sight because there is no mountaintop. Poor Sisyphus grief. I did not know I would struggle through a ragged underbrush without an upward path because there is no path. There's only a blunt rock with a river to fall into and time with its medieval chambers, time with its jagged edges and blunt instruments. I did not know the work of mourning is a labor in the dark we carry inside ourselves. Though sometimes when I sleep, I'm with him again, and then I wake. Poor Sisyphus grief, I am not ready for your heaviness cemented to my body. Look closely and you will see almost everyone carrying bags of cement on their shoulders. That's why it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning and climb into the day. This is called God and Me. The stars look like a broken belt glittering over the lakes and mountains. The moon looks like a tilted crown. Down here, there's a whole lot of racket in churches and bedrooms. Some good folks are speaking in tongues and raising the rafters. I wonder if the Lord ever gets tired of so much flattery from the fundamentalists. He probably likes it better than all the complaints and entreaties. I'm standing up to listen, but he has nothing to say to the atheists. It would be nice to believe that heaven is like a schoolyard in which everyone gets chosen, even the laggards. 
My friends are seekers and exiles who won't desert the stories. Me, I can't give him up, but I can't believe in him either. It's a one-sided relationship, I without thou. He has whole galaxies to worry about. I don't suppose he gets too worked up. My puny self is more real to me than his immense non-being. I'm a tiny void with attributes, with my own little river of tears. But what is he who fills the world with trees and stars and leaves us alone with our wars and atrocities, our deadly human nature, our sad dominion over the fish and the fowl? Look, no one knows why there's so much silence in the upper spheres and so much suffering down here. The Almighty skipped over our houses. And this is called Variations on a Psalm. It's from Psalm 77, number two. The passage is, when I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out on tiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I would not be comforted when I was in distress. I sought the Lord, whom I did not believe in, while I stretched out on tiring hands. And I would not be comforted when I was in distress. I sought the Lord. I would not pray. I would not call on him, stretched out with my untiring hands. And comforted I would not be when I was in distress without the Lord. I stretched out tireless on the bed. My hands were sleepless in despair. And I would not be comforted in my distress. I sought the Lord. I could not find him who did not believe in me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out like a penitent. And I would not be comforted. I have two more poems, and then um, maybe you have some questions, and if you do, I'd be delighted to talk to you about, about poetry. God and Me Continued. Everyone likes a good creation story. Everyone needs a history of tears. And let's not forget the primitive satisfaction of smiting our enemies. But sometimes reading the good book is like a schoolroom where a zealous teacher keeps writing on the blackboard, thou shalt not. You'd think every now and then God would just shrug his shoulders at the agnostics and penny sinners. Why bother with all those infidels and polytheists? Every plant is holy, every leaf, etc. But the dead bodies keep piling up, planet of losses and erasures, volcanoes and earthquakes. And what about the warmongers in every country on earth? Let's face it, the Lord above is never going to break the teeth of the wicked. O oh, fellow psalmists, close your prayer books. Put away your tarot cards and Ouija boards. It's a foggy night by the sea, and the world is like a broken tablet where I can't read the signs or letters. I was never able to pray. Wheel me down to the shore where the lighthouse was abandoned and the moon tolls in the rafters. Let me hear the wind paging through the trees and see the stars flaring out one by one 
like the forgotten faces of the dead. I was never able to pray, but let me inscribe my name in the book of waves and then stare into the dome of a sky that never ends and see my voice sail into the night. Thank you. Thank you.